0: Please grab your Bibles and open them to 1 Timothy, and really we're going to be in the pastoral epistles where we have been for the last handful of weeks, and uh, as I've kind of put some things and some thought together, why, we've, we'll have be there again next week. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but hey, it's probably safer to say that, right? Uh, I want to start our morning, uh, our our message time here off with uh, a quote from a guy by the name of George Swinock. He was an, an English pastor from the 1600s. And he said this, If the church be a burning bush, it will not be consumed because God is in it. And what a great reminder that because we serve the great living God, He ever lives, and so therefore His church will ever live. And so in other words, though it goes through fire, have no fear, it will last because God is in it. And That's why we preach God's word here. That's why we lay out the... Gospel and call for people to believe it, God is here through His Word, that is, through this Gospel. You get saved people in a church and you have the very power of God. He works for us, so we will work through Him. Now, our kind of controlling passage for this uh, part of the message is First Timothy 3:14 and 15, if you just put your eyes over there, again I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church. In other words, these pastoral epistles, in this particular one, but you could say a similar thing about the one in Titus, these were written so that the church would know how it should behave, literally. How it ought to conduct itself. To really pay attention to our behavior, to establish a particular kind of behavior. Now, again, we're talking about how the church works. Looking at the pastoral letters from Paul to Timothy and Titus to see just what the church should be doing. And you remember Paul made the point to these pastors that the church would face attack. So be ready is what he says. Now, how are we to be ready? Two ways. Remember the gospel and remember how the church is supposed to work. And we looked at the seven challenges to the church that Timothy and Titus faced and we, we, you know, we face similar challenge, challenges too, don't we? I mean, it's, it's not as easy for, you know, just uh, to open your Bible and explain it and people will believe it and, you know, then glory. It, it's just not that easy, is it? We want it to be that easy. You would like your parenting to be that easy, right? Just, oh, just have the devotions and open your Bibles and then everybody's just going to fall in line. And, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Paul told Timothy, there's a coming time for churches that stick to the preaching, you know, the preaching the Bible verse by verse by God's authority. There's coming a, a time when people will not endure it. We've seen it. They'll turn away, it says, their ears from the truth and turn aside to fiction, to stories. In other words, what what becomes palatable is not the truth actually, but just something that could take our minds away from reality. I kind of think that's why we have such lately is such a fascination. With superhero stories like, you know, comic book stories and things that we can put on screen that, you know, are people that are almost like these godlike creatures, people with these superpowers. We need to be careful. We're called not to live in the fantasy, but we're called to walk by the truth, to be pillars and support of the truth. Now, when thinking about that, I remember a few books that I had read from John MacArthur about this very thing. One is called Reckless Faith and the other, The Truth War. And I won't give you all the details about them. They're very good books and you can read them on your own, but they really do cover a lot of the things that we've been uh, going through here in the pastoral letters. But let me give you a few thoughts to glean on about the battle that we are facing when it comes to holding fast the word of of truth. Now this kind of covers the last hundred years or so. There have been a few challengers to the church that, that have watered us down. And uh, MacArthur, especially I think it is in the book Reckless Faith, gives these. And I want to give some, some of my own comment to this here. But the first one, the first challenger we've seen over the last hundred years, and maybe you remember this, is called you can call it existentialism, existentialism. Now existentialism pretty much was fathered by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. And he wrote this statement in his journal, August 1st, 1835. He said, the thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die, end quote. And I understand Kierkegaard was somebody that it wasn't like he was wasn't trained uh, in Christianity or in the church at all. He was he was connected to the church in a in a vital way, really, in his day, a Bible teaching church. But he then became the father of existentialism, and what he was really doing is he was trying to take the orthodoxy of the church that he was a part of, and try to give it life. It felt dead to him, and he wanted to give it life. What he probably was seeing was people that just were not obeying the scriptures. And he felt he needed to be more than just some guy getting up and teaching, and me just listening, and going home and being uncertain, how do I live this thing out? He's the father of existentialism, which is a way of thinking for Christians. John MacArthur says, quote, Clearly Kierkegaard has already rejected as inherently worthless the belief that truth is objective. You see, Kierkegaard, he he was saying the thing is to find a truth which is true for me. In other words, I need it to be truth that can reach me right where I'm at. That has a flavor that I can taste. It fits my palate. Now, what's that saying when he says what he said? Kierkegaard goes on to say what would be the use of discovering so called objective truth? What good would it do me if truth stood before me, cold and naked, not caring whether I recognize her or not, and producing in me a shudder of fear rather than a trusting devotion? I am left standing like a man who has rented a house and gathered all the furniture and household things together, but has not yet found the beloved with whom to share the joys and sorrows of his life. It is this divine side of man, his inward action, which means everything, not a mass of objective information, he says. John MacArthur goes on to say the difference between truth and nonsense then becomes meaningless. All that matters is personal experience to existentialism. And one person's experience is as valid as another's. Even if everyone's experiences lead to contradictory conceptions of truth. Truth that is true for me might be different from someone else's truth. End quote. Truth that is truth for me. That pretty much describes much of what has gone on over the last hundred years. Now, that impacted Christians on how they looked at the truth, at the word. The second one, the second attack on the truth was neo-orthodoxy. You say, what's that? Well, the word neo is a word from which we get the word new from. A new kind of orthodoxy. The Bible itself, this is what they have, how you can describe it. The Bible itself is not objectively the word of God, but it becomes the word of God. It becomes living, becomes active. When it speaks to me individually, that's when it really becomes the word of God, they say. John MacArthur on Neo-Orthodoxy says, "What the Bible means becomes unimportant. Then, what it means to me is the relevant issue." End quote. You see, in other words, I'm not that interested. Don't tell me what it meant to people, you know, two thousand years ago. I'm living in the now. I need to know how that's relevant for me in the now. As though people 2000 years ago are different than people now. And again, they deny objective truth. The third challenger in the last hundred years to the truth is mysticism. John MacArthur again, quote, mysticism is the idea that spiritual reality is found by looking inward. The mystic disdains rational understanding and seeks truth. Instead, through the feelings, the imagination, personal visions, inner voices, private illumination, or other purely subjective means, objective truth becomes practically superfluous, end quote. He goes on to say, Neo-Orthodoxy attacked the objective inspiration of Scripture. Evangelical mysticism attacks the objective interpretation of Scripture. End quote. Now that's big. He says with Neo-Orthodoxy, they were questioning, did God really say this? With mysticism, does God really mean this? Maybe it can mean something else. Maybe we could all have different meanings, and it's okay. Fourth, you could call liturgical orthodoxy. Liturgical orthodoxy. And this is where you have tradition and structure and routine and symbolism. This is where the Catholic Church is at. This is... Where maybe even some Lutheran churches and so forth, and it's where it's really important to be in touch with the symbolism of of the past and the symbolism symbolism of Christianity. And so you might have things, relics, and candles, and things that help you physical things that can help you to really have the rever- the, the feeling that God is 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 there. That, that will help you to be connected to reverence and so forth. You know the the incense that can connect with your sensory to make you think. Oh, you know the 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 big uh, either you know the stained glass that is that is up that kind of helps you to identify. Oh, this is this feels reverent. And those things became more important than scripture. Romans ten two to four zeal without knowledge, right? Now that was the attack on the truth in the last hundred years and you could add the emerging church movement where you can't really know what is true and that's kind of bled into today. The emerging church was the beginning there of the 2000s and they basically were trying to tell us you, you could, uh, you can't really know what is true. And so we do our best, and there was a sort of a humility. They said it's, it's humble to be able to just say, well, who could really know these things? You could add the Christian agnostic movement where you reject key themes from Scripture and just say, we don't know what the answer is. We just know it isn't this. And that's where N.T. Wright comes from, with justification and substitution and Imputation, or Rob Bell who rejects hell as reality. And so what they're, what they're left with is saying, well, we just don't really know fully. It's kind of hard to understand these things. Others that say the biblical view of God paints God as a torturer that sends people to hell to torture good people and all of that is an attack on truth. And that brings us to today, and I suppose if you wanted to add a, another challenger to the truth, it would be people that are saying that, listen, you might have arrived at your conclusion to what the truth is good for you. I want to celebrate that. I want to say that's fantastic, and I have my own view over here, and this person has their own view over here, and we need to have a sort of... Uh, a unification with one another that allows for each other to have our own views and to celebrate it and and really not, you don't enter into my space, I don't enter into your space, and it's okay. And it's actually virtue because we let each other do that, and we don't talk about it. Now, all of that is an attack on the truth. You say, why is this bad? Look at First 1 Timothy 1.19. That attack on truth leads to a shipwrecked faith. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. They have wrecked their faith. And today, you know, you say, oh, today people are wanting you to have faith in faith. Here he says, no, there are people that have been shipwrecked in their faith, in the faith. That's literally how it reads. John MacArthur says, there is a rise today in the amount of so-called Christians who have wrecked their faith. Why? He gives six reasons. Let me give them to you. First of all, because of the weakening of doctrinal clarity. People in churches today are okay with blurry lines. They're okay with unclear positions on doctrine. Secondly, because of the disparagement of strong convictions, the disparagement of strong con- convictions. In other words, opinions and suggestions have replaced convictions. It's okay not to have a conviction today. And because people disparage that, because people say, you know, be careful. You It's okay to kind of hover, but don't land that thing. Because if you land it, you're going to sound like one of those fundamentalists. So those are two reasons. He gives a third reason why people have shipwrecked their faith. Thirdly, a refusal to shun the world. You can't see straight because you're just chasing the world. And you live by passion and emotion that is driven by the world. Fourth reason why people shipwreck their faith in the faith is forth a failure to interpret scripture carefully. (laughs) Carefully. We either rush into things because we want the quick answer to problems and we don't take time to ask or we really want to just stay there in the shallow waters where you you can make statements about things and assertions that you don't even really understand. Confident assertions, isn't that what he says in First Timothy one, wanting to, verse seven, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You're not being careful to find out what. but what does the Bible mean when it says that? Fifth reason why people are shipwrecking their faith today is the neglect of church discipline. People are allowed to live how they want to live or say whatever they want to say with no consequences. It's not helpful. And then sixth, a lack of spiritual maturity, a lack of spiritual maturity. We allow so called Christians to stay spiritually immature, and all of that has caused many to shipwreck the faith. The faith that their lives should be you know, on really the faith that we should be, as it says in first Timothy three fifteen, should be a support of Lifting up. Now what can we do? Jude 3 and 4 give us the answer. Jude says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. The faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now what is the faith once for all handed down to the saints? It's scripture, it's the New Testament. He says contend for that. The word contend literally to fight for. Fight for that. Do people recognize you as a fighter? For the right things? Verse 4, for, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And they sneak in, they start denying that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. What should you do? Fight back. How? Contend for the faith. Protect it. Clarify it. Expose error with it. That's what you do. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, quote, The church of Christ is continually represented under the figure of an army. Yet its captain is the prince of peace. Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of a peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point to the spirit of the gospel. Yet nevertheless... The church on earth has, and until the second advent must be, the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. And how is this? It is in the very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that it were not true if error were friends with it. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. End quote. The church got its start by war. Jesus left, and the war began, and it hasn't stopped. He kept them from any of the impact of it. He said, In John 15, that when he left, they are going to treat you badly. Not personally badly, but in this war against the truth. The church has faced it in every age. Shortly after the apostles, there was the disciple of John, Ignatius. And Ignatius trained and another guy named Polycarp. And he was wanted by the authorities because he was known as a leader among the Christians. And he was taken to a stadium in his old age and ordered there to reject Christ upon pain of death. And here was his response. Eighty-six years, he said, have I served him. And he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? End quote. And he was burned alive on the spot. At the age of 86. You say, what harm could an 86-year-old guy have? Oh, they knew. Plenty. If you just let him preach this. So he, he's 86. Got to shut his mouth. Because he keeps telling us this. Did he die for nothing? He died for the truth. Was, was that unnecessary? Should he have said, well, there are many truths and many ways to the truth and many faiths and, faiths and there's room for all kinds. I mean, should he have saved his life for a thought like that? Second Timothy 3.12, look at it there yourself, has the answer. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So why say all of this? Because we need to understand the church faces pressure and attack for this one thing, the truth. Because we are called to speak the truth. And to be a pillar and foundation that holds it up. So what can we do in light of all of that? Two things. First, remember how the gospel works. And we looked at that from the pastoral letters. And then, second, remember how the church works. And let's look at these when the church gets going, it behaves a certain way. What's our mission? 1 Timothy 3.15, to be a pillar in support of the truth, to uphold it. And our behavior flows out of that kind of mission. So what's our behavior look like? First, it commits to sound doctrine. It gets our thinking right. Secondly, it preaches the word and that's expositional verse by verse, book by book, that's our direction right. So first we get our thinking right. Secondly, we then get our direction right. We let God speak to us, and we work hard at understanding what He what He has said. Thirdly, it confronts sin. Along the way in your direction, you're gonna have stumbling. There's gonna be there are gonna be potholes in your life. Well then you've got to confront that. We have to help each other to deal with the sin in our lives. Fourth, sometimes, though, it's more serious than that. And so fourth, part of our behavior and this is we, we ended last time with this, and we're going to pick it back up. It rejects false teaching. It rejects false teaching. A behaving church is one that is like a lighthouse. Your light is shining out to help others know where the safety is, but it's also there to warn the intruders. Right? You know the reason why you turn on your light historically, why the light, your porch light is on at nighttime. Why? You're letting people know we're home and we'll do something about that if you try to enter in you're uninvited. This is just letting people know. The light is on. We're warning you. You're welcome, but you're also warned, right? How do we do that? How do we make sure that our light is shining in this direction, rejecting false teaching? Back to verse Timothy 1, look at verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. And we mentioned last time at the very end that one of the ways the FBI understands what a true or what a, you know, the true versus the false uh in terms of counterfeiting bills. They do this by studying the real ones, as you know to be able to pick out the false ones. And so they become experts in the genuine so that the fake will stand out. And my fear, beloved, is we are just familiar with the Bible and not really working at becoming experts of this. And we're okay with that. We have to read to know Christ. And in our knowing, we have to become experts in what He wants us to know so that we can guard the home, see. We have to, I mean, the more we become experts of this, we become experts really at just knowing who our Savior is. Can you tell people what He's like? Somebody comes to ask you, what is he like? Can you tell them? And does it go deeper than just, well, he's loving. Tell me about that love. You say, is there a clue when something is false? I mean, how can I tell when something is false? Notice in First Timothy 1, verse 4, mere speculation rather than, the, than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, when the thing that they are saying sounds more like speculation, then we're moving away from true doctrine, right? A speculation is more like guessing. By the way, the Eastern 1800s, is what they called, when it was called speculation, what they meant is you're going to go, right, and gamble. By the way, that's what the word gamble means, risk. You're not sure. speculation is more like guessing it is conjecture it is conclusion by opinion rather than fact what's our fact our facts are scripture so you ask the question does the scripture support this thought you have come to me with your thought i come to you with scripture and let's look to see if your thought is supported by this scripture Notice another thing speculation does. It takes us away from the administration of God. You say, what is the administration of God? The administration of God is God's base of operations. It is his manual on how to do things. It is his final word on what we should think, what we should do and how we should do it and when we should not do it and what we should avoid and what we should promote and so forth. Notice also too here, which is by faith. Anything that takes you away from needing faith is heading in the wrong direction. Listen, beloved. False teaching always works to move you away from faith in God. Always. Darwinism and the theory of evolution does that very thing. In fact, worse... It is baseless, and so it calls for you to place faith in its version of facts instead of God. Even though they make speculations about things they have never seen. Do not be intimidated by this stuff. It's just speculation. The world is millions of years old. We used to be monkeys. Really? Well, how do you know? Research. Where'd you get that research from? Bones in the earth. Oh, when did we become monkeys? Well, you see, it's a mutation of species. Oh, well, when did that happen? Well, it took a long time. Oh, isn't science based basing everything on observing facts right i believe that's what it says in your science book you observe facts and that's how you come to your conclusions right right okay so who saw this change take place well no one but it happened So you didn't see the change take place, but you want me to believe that it took place? Yeah. Yeah, That's called a leap of faith. But faith in the wrong direction. You're calling me to place my faith in scientists who studied the... These scientists sin, right? Yeah, okay. Just checking. Who studied this thing, over years, and they're trying to tell us about something, a process that happened over millions of years, though nobody has ever seen anything, and you're telling me, believe it. Or I could look at God's Word, Psalm 33, who says that He spoke this thing into existence. Where were you, Job says? When God did all these things in creation. I love that he asked, that He says, where were you? Because by saying that, he is speaking to the evolutionists, to the Darwinian and saying, guys, you have conclusions, but where were you? What Paul is calling for is that discernment to know what the truth is. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, we have to... Be able to know when someone is paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to be able to detect false teaching, so you can reject it, you're going to need to know what are the sound words of Jesus. That's what he says. False teaching twists the truth. Paul says in verse 3, it's not a doctrine that conforms to godliness. How do you know when you're moving away from the words of our Lord Jesus? Verse 4, you have an interest in controversial questions and you argue about words. That's a good starting place, right? You cause people to be envious. You cause strife. You use abusive language. You're full of evil suspicions against others. Verse 5, there's always friction. I'm not making this stuff up. It's what he says. Have you noticed that with people that promote false teaching? Sure. You're deprived of the truth. You think because you have stuff, because you're blessed with wealth, that you are godly. In other words, that it is teaching that makes much of this world and the stuff in it and very little about godliness and contentment. And that helps me to understand I might be bumping into false teaching. Paul warned Titus about false teaching too. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He says, no sound doctrine, Titus. Why? So you can reject false teaching. Verse 10, there are rebellious deceivers. Verse 11, that need to be silenced because they upset whole families. In other words... I want you to know this stuff. I want you to have sound doctrine so that you can spot the people that mess it up. And why is this important? Look at the families. They're messing with families. And the families aren't like this anymore. They're like this. Oftentimes, when families are like this, go back and look at where did the false teaching come from? Somehow it entered in. Somehow it got in the door. Front, back, bedroom window, wherever. It got in. You say, what were they teaching? Let me give you an example of what it, what it looked like false teaching. Go to Second Timothy 2 and start in verse 16. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. Verse 17, their their talk will spread like gangrene, like like disease that spreads quickly. By the way, worldly and empty chatter, I mean, hey, well, what does the world have to say about this? I mean, there's some experts out there. Uh, Just Google it. Whoa, I get a little nervous when people say, well, I Googled it. Or I've kind of, you know, just needed a quick answer and everything. I think to myself, well, I don't know where Google got his theology from. careful what's he talking about here he's talking about false teaching when he says it's going to spread real quickly verse 17 among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus many who have gone astray from the truth ooh What what do they teach saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some what's false teaching here it is that the resurrection has already happened. You say, why would they say that? They're trying to be teachers with new truth. Trying to make others think that they are glorified. They And so what is wrong with you? I mean, we've embraced this teaching and we're outstanding people. What's wrong with you? But that's not what the Bible teaches. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. These guys were trying to say they belonged to a select group of Christians and had a higher level of glory. Christians who are the real believers. And Paul says, listen, the Lord knows the ones that, that are really his. Who are they? Who are the real ones? Ones that care about staying away from wickedness. It matters to them. Let me say this. False teaching is never concerned about true godliness. Never concerned about it it will allow for you to live ungodly. You can be ungodly with the false teaching. They don't care. Fine. So what do we do as a church? How should we behave? Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. That's just saying in the church, you have some saints that are true, and some that are false with their false teaching. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, what things? False teaching. The false teachers with their teaching. If you behave that way, if you do that, verse 21, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, look what it says next, useful to the master prepared for every good work. See, you're going to be ready to work. Why? Because you've taken out the trash. What, what trash? False teaching. Simon Ash, an English nonconformist chaplain to Earl of Manchester during the first English Civil War, 1640s, he said this, error needs a great deal of defending to keep it from sinking into oblivion, a great deal of equivocation to hide its certain and natural consequences from being detected by honest inquiry, and a great deal of learning and rhetoric to plead its cause. But in order to embrace truth, we need only light To see it by and a heart to love it. End quote. I like that. All we need is just light. And we have it in Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And you just keep shining on the word that it might reflect to them. How does the church work? What's her behavior? Like, first, she commits to sound doctrine. Second, she preaches the word. Third, she confronts sin. Fourth, she rejects false teaching. Number five, she prays evangelistically. She prays evangelistically. What about a heart for the lost? That's this point. Heart for the lost. This is how we behave. We carry the same heart for the lost that our Lord had when He was on this earth. Now go to Second Timothy, or excuse me, First Timothy, First Timothy, chapter two, verse one. Paul says, um, "I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity." He saying... Man, the Lord would have to seriously transform the leaders of our nation for all of that to be true. Exactly. He would, wouldn't he? Have you done that? To our shame, we have such strong views about certain political figures, but we're not praying much for their their salvation. Because I'll tell you, the Lord saves them, they'll change their views. It always happens. So verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Why call him that Savior? Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now who are the all men that Paul is talking about? Put it in its context. It's not that hard to see. Look at it. The kings and people in authority over the nation. He wants all kinds of people saved, even politicians, see. So what he say? You say, can that really happen? Can God really save hard to reach people like that? I mean, that would be some evangelism if he did that. I know, and that's why he gives verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Do you know why Paul feels like he has to tell Timothy this? Because they're saying the same thing that we are saying today. What about our politicians? What do we do with that? What do we do with people involved in government? What do we do with that? They were saying the same thing. Why? Well, I mean, you know, the people that were governing back then were people like Nero. Just read about him. You can struggle with the governor that we've had like lately with the past year in Nevada, but I'll just tell you this, he was nothing like Nero. I don't remember him putting up any people and any believers, and lighting them up as torches to light up his garden. That's what Nero was doing. So they were trying to figure out themselves. These people have questions about what do you do with government? What do you do with the governors? Paul says, pray for them. God sent Jesus to pay for the sins of politicians too, national leaders too. Look at verse 7. Now watch this. This is so good. For this, this kind of work, what work? The work of evangelism. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith, the truth. He says, this is my ministry and it needs to be yours too. How can it become ours? Start by praying. Verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You know, you start thinking about the leaders of this nation, and for some it makes them mad. The Lord here says, don't be mad, pray. He says, without wrath and dissension, pray. Pray for their souls. You just want people to know Christ and to know the Savior to be saved from sin, and so you pray. Let me show you another thing, and notice it is the men leading in this very thing. How do you know the men of the church are doing well? Because they have a heart for the lost. Are we doing well this church? amen Now, prayer and evangelism are really connected throughout Scripture with our Lord's heart. Just before launching into a plea for prayer, Paul said this in chapter one, verse fifteen of First Timothy: "Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners." Paul says, "I just don't. I don't. I never leave that vine." Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or listen to Paul in Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it. Tremendous. Be a, be a prayer warrior. Right? Notice what we pray for. Verse 3, Colossians four three praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul says, pray evangelistically. Pray for God to use us with the gospel. Where did Paul learn that? From Jesus. Matthew chapter 9. You remember, Jesus was just always around people, and I think the best of us would have gotten really overwhelmed and, you know, just really tired of just so many people with so many needs. Can I just get a break from so many people? Right, so draining. Right. I mean, and, but that's because we don't take up the Lord's heart. And so, verse thirty-five. Jesus was going through the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and he just desired a break, it says next, right? No. Maybe you even thought, I, just, I bet Jesus was feeling good giving people the word, giving them mercy, just satisfied. Verse 36, it says, seeing the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Doomed, lost. Look at these people on the verge of harm to yourself. So you see the Lord's heart, the gospel is out, the mercy was given, but there's more that we can do. If only there were people with the heart of a shepherd to care. What can we do? Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Can't you see it? These people are lost and need the Lord. They need to be saved. He says, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Some people make a deal about this and say, well, the Lord doesn't say that we should pray for the lost. He says pray for workers to help the lost. But listen, that might be true, but but it's all the same. I mean, if you get the workers to the lost, then you get the gospel to them, right? And if, you know, that happens, they hear it, and then what? The Lord saves them. And so you're praying for the whole evangelistic enterprise. A church that behaves praise evangelistically. Prayer and evangelism are connected, beloved. You need to see this. So, behavior checklist. Here we go. Commits to sound doctrine. Preaches the word. Confronts sin. Rejects false teaching. Praise evangelistically. We're behaving right when we appoint elders. Appoints elders. Now, turn to Titus 1 for this one. Now, both Timothy and Titus were temporary pastors in the churches that they were at, and Paul left them with certain tasks to finish. And Titus had the job of getting the leadership put together. So verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete. You would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Yeah, he says, Titus, I need you to set in order, epi diortho, to straighten out, to correct, to put something back like a broken bone or something that needs to be assembled. Now a form of the word is where we get our word for orthotics from. And you use orthotics to help straighten out that foot, to get that foot where it needs, you know, how it needs to be. Paul says, we need to get the feet of this church moving in the right direction. All right. Got the church started. Paul says, I got it going in the right direction. You know, Paul preached the gospel. God saved people. And he says, we discipled saints. And, and then I left you there to do one more big thing. And that is this. Appoint elders. Now, What's an elder? And why is it important to appoint them? And who does the appointing? Why do we need these guys? The Bible uses three different words to describe the same man, the same office. Um, I'll give it to you real quickly. Elder. Presbyteros. This is the word... Uh, that describes the maturity of the person, the, the maturity of the man, the, the model, uh, the, the, to, that is to model godliness for all souls, okay? So, overseer is another word, episkopos is sometimes used to describe this person, and this speaks not necessarily to the maturity, but to the responsibility of the man, the scope of the whole. To, that is to know all souls. He is responsible to know all souls, to shepherd them, if you will. But to know them in particular, and that's what the word episcopus means. The word sc- scopus is you know, like in microscope or telescope. It has to do with vision. And that's why sometimes we talk about this word meaning oversight. Epi is to be above and over. So it is to give an oversight, to see all that's taking place with people. And then the word pastor, Poyaman, the shepherding care of the man to guide all souls. Go, appoint men who will be those things for the church. Who will care for the souls and guide those souls. Now why do we need elders over us? Because they're fathers of the flock. They They, they get us knowing and moving into the one will of Christ. 1 Peter 5, they are called the under-shepherds. And the reason is because Jesus is the chief shepherd, the chief elder, if you will. In other words, they answer to him. And so the question always for them is, what is the one will of Christ for the church? And how do we accomplish that? Now to know his will... You don't have to invent stuff and just call it his will. That's why those guys have to be masters of this book, right? They're becoming masters of his will. And you know, like the apostles, they study it, they get their convictions from it, they pray because of it, and then they mobilize the church as a result of all of this. See, that's how it works. Notice, too, that he says, appoint elders in every city. Now that means this is a pattern for all churches. It's always appropriate to ask a person about their elders when you're asking them about their church. So why are you doing that? Because Titus said, hey, Paul told Titus, appoint them in every city. Now, how do we find these guys Titus 1 verses 5 to 9 of 1 Timothy 3 1 through 7 give the qualifications every elder must have in order to step into this position. Now, they can be trained in this, they can grow into this, but every single qualification must be there in order to appoint the man to this position. Now I want you to think about this here. Here is Titus, a real person. Paul says, I've gotta go. People have come to know the Lord. I need you to find those guys that are elders and appoint them. How are you going to know this information about a person? Well, you better get to know their lives, right? This is not a quick process. That's why, by the way, in First Timothy 5.22, Paul says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. And thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Be careful. Be intentional. Be slow. But steady. Now what do you look for? Look at verses 6 through 9. Here we go. He says, if any man is above reproach, this is the umbrella quality. Above reproach. It means no one can accuse him of anything that would stick in a courtroom. So we're talking about integrity here. I mean, how how do we know that he is a man of integrity? Here we go. Let me give you first, let me give you some, some ways to know. Are we looking at a man who is a man of integrity, the kind of integrity that would allow for him to be an elder of this church? First, look at his home. Look at his home. Verse six, the husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Now two things. It doesn't mean he has to be married, okay? But if he is, just one, right? I mean, that's that's that. But it means more than that too. It means, uh, it literally says it this way, that he would be a one woman man and it is clear that he is devoted to one woman. No rivals. One direction, one woman. You know, even a single man can be a one woman man. You say he can? He has to have a woman. No, it doesn't say he has to have one. But what it says is that he's one track. A guy who in his mind has all kinds of women going on in there, that's not a one woman man, right? In other words, he's not looking all over the place. He's content to be the guy who's committed to the one woman the Lord would give him, see? And he's ready for that. You know, There's always been my plea for, for, the, for the boys, plea for my daughters as well, be committed even before marriage to, to one. Notice also... So you look in the home, but here's what else you look in the home, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now what's the standard in the home? Knowing and loving Christ. That means that he is a man who has brought the gospel into his home and his children have received it. He's not saying you need to save them. You cannot save them. That's something that only God does. But what he is saying is you lead them to believe the, the gospel. You do that work. How will we know if they believe? I mean, look at their lives. I mean, they're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. They're not accused of wasting their life. Literally, that's the word dissipation means to waste the life. And you can waste your life in all kinds of ways. Waste your life drinking. Waste your life partying. Waste your life, you know, uh, in re- Rebellion. In waywardness. And then he says accused of going. Doing the opposite of what God says. Accused of it. In other words it's obvious. And others see this. So the first area. The home. The second area to look at for qualifications. His personal character. Verse 7. God's steward not self-willed. He sacrifices what he wants to help others. He sacrifices his own time, his own opinion. It doesn't... His own opinion doesn't matter. He does not make things about him. Let me give you another one. Look at another one here. Not quick-tempered. He's not a hothead. He doesn't get easily angered. Okay. Another one. Not addicted to wine this means he isn't known for being a guy that needs alcohol in his hand nor does it nor is nor can you find it there as a means of just kind of who he is literally the it says that that uh, that drink sits next to him he's not a person where drink sits next to him Here's another one. He's not pugnacious, and that just simply means a brawler, a fighter. Uh, you're not having to tell this guy, hey, settle down. Settle down. There are a lot of issues out there. It is easy, I know, I understand, to get in the fights about them. But not this guy. It's not saying he's a pacifist. It's saying he just doesn't look to initiate by really Bringing up a fight, bringing things to a fight. Another one, not fond of sordid gain, and so you look at how this guy is with money. I mean, does he love it? Does he need it? How does he use his money? Does he use it to love others with it? Here's another one. He's. It says he's he's hospitable. Here come the positive ones. It is it's so it's obvious that he loves strangers, that he he loves visitors, he's getting people into his home, you know, making them feel welcome, getting into the homes of others and making them feel welcome. Another, loving what is good, he's not a baddie. <laughs> It kind of gets celebrated today. It's crazy. He's all about the good. He's all about the wholesome thing. Another, he's sensible. This just means he he doesn't operate from an emotional level. He doesn't allow his mind to get carried away or swayed by his emotion when making decisions. He stays attached to wisdom. Here's another one. He's just. That is, he has a sense of righteousness, of what is right and fair. Here's another one, devout. No one questions his devotion to the Lord or his church. This is another way of saying that he's always around. And when he is around, it is for good. It is clear this man is serious about knowing and following Christ. And then it says this one, self-controlled. He doesn't get out of bounds in his character. And if he does, he doesn't stay there very long. So you look at the home of the man, you look at his character. One more place to look at, you look at his teaching, Titus 1.9. And we've already looked at this verse. Is he able to use the word because he knows the word and he uses it to identify sound doctrine and to identify error? Do do, do we see that out of this guy? Now, is it important that a church have guys like this? Yes. Paul tells Titus, go find them and then appoint them. Go find them and you then appoint them. Now, I want to tell you just a a little bit more about elders. We're going to save this for the next time. Um, So I really, really want you to see how this fits in with the, the church and really even how we get to that place. I mean, right now we happen to be a church where you have, you know, one elder. That doesn't mean we're not looking out that way. We're called to do that. So we're right here. We really are. Paul will be basically telling me, hey, go appoint elders. Okay. So what's that look like to get into the process of doing that? I think it's relevant for us. So we need to talk a little bit more about that and we'll uh, get to some of the other points next time. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. You're good. And we trust you uh, for just guiding our church where it needs to go and how it needs to get there. And Lord, uh, help us to be a church that really just is committed to not only knowing the truth, but holding ourselves accountable to it and helping us to learn how to reject false teaching. And um I pray also to, to you, Father, that we will grow in our heart as in our heart for the lost and um all these things, as we're thinking about the behavior of our church, Lord, it's connected to really to who we are in you and with you. And so I just pray, Father, will you, through the Holy Spirit, make it clear to people here this morning to know where it is that you're telling them that they need to do work in uh, growing. And I pray, Father, that we will give you the glory in that. We love you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.